Um, so we welcome those who are joining us a little later today. We welcome you here to 59th Street Church. Um, and as we continue forward in our sermon series, The New Kingdom, I wanted to share a little story with you all. Um, I remember on our Tuesday prayer meeting, um, our dear Artie, he mentioned that Lloyd Lister uh, was a spiritual warrior, uh, a person with tremendous faith. And if you spoke with him or if you knew him, uh, you would instantly know that there was just something qualitatively different about him. And in today's passage, we'll read shortly about someone who also inspired me, um, a spiritual warrior or man of faith from <laughs> hundreds of years ago. Um, so if you'd like to join me, we're going to be talking today about a man who spoke boldly uh, for Christ, no matter the circumstance, and he always spoke with words of power. And so who is this man? So for me, uh, this, one of these spiritual warriors that deeply influenced me uh, was a man named Polycarp, uh, who served as the Bishop of Smyrna in the second century. Uh, Polycarp, he was actually one of the direct disciples of John the Apostle. And along with Clement of Rome and Ignatius of Antioch, uh, these three people were called the three chief apostolic fathers. And pretty much almost all of the theology that we have today, almost all of our understanding of who God is, comes from these three individuals. However, uh, despite the growth and the life and goodness that comes from the growth of God's kingdom, unfortunately, there was another kingdom lurking in the shadows. And for a variety of reasons, this kingdom, the Roman Empire, uh, took absolutely great lengths to demand Christians to renounce their faith or else be killed. And these early persecutions actually um, it claimed the lives of all of the apostles, except for John. And in the case of Polycarp, since he was the bishop of a city, he was a pretty well-known Christian. Um, and in Smyrna, it was also a city that devoted itself heavily to the Romans. And so the crowds, they quickly seized upon the opportunity to have Polycarp martyred. And as the guards and as the horsemen came to Polycarp's home on a Friday evening, uh, they found him laying down in the upper room of a cottage. And the, these guards, they were amazed at Polycarp because he was 86 years old, and rather than struggling, rather than attempting to escape, Polycarp simply said to them, God's will be done. And to the surprise of the guards, uh, Polycarp also immediately called for food and drink uh, for the people who are about to arrest him, and then he politely asked them if he could pray for an hour uninterrupted. And seeing this, even the guards were amazed. And some of them even said, why did we go to so much trouble to capture a man like this? And many of them regretted coming to arrest such a godly and venerable old man. And the guards, rather than letting Polycarp pray for one hour, they let him pray uninterrupted for over two hours. But 
nonetheless, the guards, they had to obey a different kingdom. They had to obey the will of the Roman Empire. And so Polycarp was still seized. and They led him to trial before the Roman proconsul. And as Polycarp met with the Romans, uh, they tried to persuade him to apostatize, to give up his faith. Uh, they said to him, have respect for your old age, swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent and say down with the atheists. Um, and the thing is, since Christians really didn't believe in any of the Roman gods and only believed in one god, which was unheard of besides the Jews, um, by the Romans, they were seen as atheists. Uh, but Polycarp, upon being asked to renounce Christ under the threat of torture and under the threat of death, he said, this. He said, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. I'll be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. You threaten me, with fire, which burns for an hour and is then extinguished, but you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. And as a result of these bold words, um, the Romans, they tried to burn him to death, uh, but according to eyewitness accounts, the flames would not even touch Polycarp's body. And so eventually, one of the Roman soldiers had to take a dagger and stabbed it into Polycarp's side. Um, and the story goes that even his blood extinguished the flames, that God would not even allow his body to be burned. Now, what a spiritual warrior, right? What a model of faith. And today, as we continue to move forward in our sermon series, we come to one of the first recorded martyrdoms after Christ's ascension. So if you'll turn to me to Acts chapter 7, verses 51 to 60, uh, we will read our passage today. So again, that is Acts chapter 7, verses 51 to 60. And this is the word of the Lord, and this is also the word of Stephen, the one who is about to be martyred. And he says this, You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through the angels but, not, but have not obeyed it. And when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen cried and prayed out to the Lord, 
Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Before I continue on, there's, there's an actually an interest, interesting parallel here that um, Stephen accuses their ears and their hearts of being uncircumcised. And as Stephen tells them about seeing Christ, <laughs> they literally cover, they cover their ears, which is uh, pretty, pretty interesting um, to, to think about. Now, last week, we, uh, we covered the church electing seven new Hellenistic leaders of the church uh, who were qualified to lead the church because they were filled with spirit and filled with wisdom. And amongst those seven, we were quickly introduced to Stephen, uh, who was described in that passage to be a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And we see that repeated in our passage here today, actually. But why is Stephen in this position where he goes from providing for widows <laughs> to suddenly being put on trial? Like, well, what happened here? What, what, what did we miss? Well, in the second half of chapter 6, we actually see that Stephen does more than just provide for the widows. He also performs miracles in the temple, and he also boldly preaches God's word. And this brings us to our first sermon point today, bold witness. Bold witness. And so just as the Jewish leaders, as they opposed Peter when he was performing miracles in their midst, uh, they began to oppose Stephen as well, and they put him on trial. Now, there is a time and a place to be humble and to be silent like Christ when he was mocked on the cross. But there is also a time and a place to be bold and to be courageous like Polycarp, who boldly spoke the truth, even under the threats of torture and death. And Stephen, through the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, discerned that this was not a time to be silent. Rather, this is the time and place to be a bold witness before the Lord. And as Stephen was put on trial, he demonstrates a boldness that can only be found through a deep faith in our Lord. And just as the word of God can be living water that brings life to the dead, uh, God's word can also be a sword that pierces the hearts of listeners. And that is what Stephen does before the Sanhedrin. Um, earlier in chapter 7, which we didn't quite read, uh, Stephen, he actually goes through the entire history of the Israelites, starting with Abraham, and he exposes before the Jewish leaders that every time God came to the Israelites with faithfulness, God was always met with opposition and rejection from his own people. And as Stephen comes to the present day, he rightfully convicts the Jewish leaders of their sin. He tells them blatantly, with literally no sugarcoating, uh, without trying to keep the peace, he tells them that they have killed the righteous one. The Messiah that the Jews have been long waiting for. Well, guess what? You, you rejected him. You put him to death, just like how your ancestors put all of the prophets to death. You have betrayed God, and you have murdered him. And as Christians, 
um, especially in this day and age where individuals are criticized and judged incredibly harshly for anything they might really say, um, it is understandable that there's a certain amount of fear or anxiety when it comes to talking about God. Uh, the fear of rejection, the fear of insults and injury. And I must admit for myself that perhaps I have become timid and meek, not because of humility that comes from God, but maybe rather a fear of criticism, maybe a fear of saying the wrong thing and being mocked and shamed. Maybe I stay silent, not because it is the wise thing to do, but because I'm too afraid, because I lack boldness and courage. But what this passage reminds me is that although we should strive to be humble, although we should strive to develop humility, we should at the same time strive to develop courage and boldness for the Lord. That although the gospel message is preached to those who are poor in spirit and to those who are meek, it is also the same gospel message that is preached boldly to governors and to kings, to the leaders of the world. And the thing is, we develop this boldness and courage uh, not to offend everyone we meet, right? Like, it would, be, it would be a little ridiculous to try to offend someone with the gospel as they're grieving. Um, that's definitely not what we want to do. But the thing is, we develop boldness so that at the right time and at the right place, through the wisdom of God, we will know when is the proper time to speak boldly. And the Holy Spirit will move within us so that we will be able to speak with the same boldness that the apostles, that Polycarp, and that Stephen had. To not be ashamed of the gospel message and to not be afraid of what might come when we do boldly preach the gospel message. And at this point, you might be wondering or thinking, well, that's, that's great, Pastor Brandon, but how, how do I do this? You know, how do I develop the boldness? How do I develop the courage so that I can preach the gospel at the right time and at the right place? Well, to answer that, let's move on to our second sermon point today, that God vindicates the righteous. Uh, we see in our passage that after Stephen boldly witnesses to the leaders of the Sanhedrin, uh, we see that they were absolutely furious. Uh, the leaders were probably thinking at this point, you know, who, who is this fake Greek Jew trying to tell us about God? And like all these other heretics, they keep saying that we have killed the chosen one, that we have killed God. And at this point in our passage, we see that as Stephen hears this, he is so full of the Holy Spirit that when he looks up to heaven, he sees something absolutely spectacular. Scripture says that Stephen looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen even tells this to the people at Sanhedrin. He doesn't keep this to himself. He says, look, I see heaven open up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And the key word in this verse today is standing. Now, what's so important about standing? Uh, well, throughout the Gospels, Jesus' favorite phrase to tell the people who exactly he is, 
is the phrase, son of man, the Messiah. But throughout the gospel, we also see that Jesus always says that you'll see the son of man sitting at the right hand of God. But as Stephen looks up, rather than seeing Christ seated, Stephen now sees Christ stand up. Now, why would Christ rise? Um, And there are three reasons, and I believe these are the same three reasons for how all martyrs were able to be bold and how we too will be able to develop boldness in preaching the gospel. The first reason is that Christ rises to receive Stephen. Uh, Stephen, realizing that his life is soon to come to an end, um, he sees Christ in heaven rising out of his throne to welcome Stephen into eternal life. And for all martyrs, this is actually the primary reason why none of them ever fear. They understand that though our mortal bodies will pass away, all of us are clothed in eternal life. That though we may suffer for a moment in this life for the gospel, it is literally nothing in comparison to the eternal life that can only be found in Christ. And so why fear? Why fear if our future is so secure? But not all of us have our lives threatened, at least I would hope not. And so we see that the second reason Christ rises is to restore Stephen's honor and to vindicate him. And vindicate basically means to prove someone right. That although the leaders of Jerusalem stand against Stephen, God rises out of his seat to stand with Stephen. And if you're to think about it, what greater honor is there in life than to know that the creator of the universe rises out of his throne in heaven to stand on your side. And in a culture that was so heavily based on honor and shame, for Stephen to tell the religious leaders that he sees Christ standing is to tell the religious leaders that despite all their threats and slanders, God is really standing on Stephen's side, not on their side. That although they're trying to mock Stephen and shame him, God instead honors Stephen by standing up for him. And the same goes for us. That no matter what slanders or accusations people throw at us when we faithfully talk about God or speak about him, we know that God stands on our side. The King of kings and the Lord of lords stands with us and he restores our honor and our dignity. And the final reason why Christ rises from his seat of power, and this is a scary one, it's to execute judgment against the Jewish leaders. See, as the Jewish leaders, as they reject the message that Stephen is preaching, um, it's not really Stephen they're rejecting, but they're rejecting God himself. And so as the leaders reject Christ, they pronounce themselves as the enemies of God. And God, in return, rises out of his seat to pronounce to the leaders of the temple that they are his enemies. 
And the thing is, Stephen, he actually understands all of this quite clearly and implicitly. Right? This is almost like a cultural thing for them. In a culture ruled by kings and empires, there are very, very few reasons why a king would ever rise. And one reason that we find in literature across all cultures is that a king would rise out of his seats to prepare for war. A king would rise out of his seat to take action against his enemies. But despite Christ rising in judgment, it's still a little bewildering to know that forgiveness is still not off the table. And let's actually take a look at that uh, in our final sermon point today, that the righteous vindicates Christ, that those who are righteous prove that Christ's death on the cross is truly forgiveness for all. So in our passage, how do we see that Christ was proved right? Um, we see it first in Stephen's transformed life. Uh, like Christ, he was dragged up to a hill to be murdered. And Stephen, he actually almost utters the, the same exact phrase that Christ did on the cross. He, both of them pray for God to not hold the sin against them. And the only way Stephen could ever pray such a prayer with his very last breath is if Stephen himself has received the, trans, the tremendous forgiveness that comes from God. And this attitude of forgiveness can only, can only happen in someone whose life has been radically transformed by God. Only one who has experienced in their hearts and souls what it means to have eternal life, what it means to be right with God, and what it means to be part of God's divine family. Only they can pray for forgiveness for their enemies. And it's crazy to think about, right? Because, like, honestly, who, who in their right mind would do this? Who in their right mind would forgive those who actively seek to oppress and murder? Who in their right mind can forgive those who falsely accuse? Who in their right mind can forgive those whose only agenda is death and destruction? Only those who have tasted the tree of life. Only those who have drunk from God's well of living water. Only a believer whose life has been transformed by a gracious and forgiving God. Only such a believer could elicit such a response of forgiveness. But the second way we see how the righteous vindicates Christ um, is the actual request itself. We see it in Stephen's prayer for forgiveness. And Stephen's prayer, it's more than just theatrics, right? Stephen, Stephen's not just saying these word, words for like the cool factor to be like, wow, I'm such like a great martyr or like I'm such a great imitation of Christ. This is an absolutely honest prayer that from the depths of Stephen's soul, from the depths of his heart, he, he genuinely desires that God will forgive them. That although Stephen accuses their hearts and their ears to be uncircumcised, it is Stephen's dying wish, his final desire for them to see God. And so he prays to a forgiving God to help them finally see where they have been wrong. 
And the craziest thing is, God answers. God actually answers Stephen's prayer. God proves himself to be gracious and forgiving in the midst of the most heinous lynching in the book of Acts. And rather than seeing God absolutely destroy this mob of Jews who are stoning his son, Stephen, to death, God begins to let his story of forgiveness unfold. God answers Stephen's prayer and singles out the chief opponents of the Christians. God sees the Hebrew of Hebrews, Saul of Tarsus, and God begins his good work in him. That Saul, whose heart and ears are uncircumcised, will one day become Paul, the first great missionary for God, the one who wrote 13 out of the 27 books of the New Testament. And through Stephen's prayer, God answers, and Stephen proves God to be true, to be forgiving. Stephen proves that God is always more than willing to forgive and that God is more than willing to draw even the worst of people to him. And so what can we learn uh, today from Stephen? As one of the first recorded Christian martyrs, it is without a doubt that Luke placed him here not just to honor Stephen's legacy, but to let his story be an example for everyone from the moment he wrote that story till today until eternity, to speak God's word boldly and with confidence, to know that God stands with us and for us despite the accusations of others, and to show us what it truly means to bear the cross of Christ, to embody a humbleness and a humility that can only come from a transformed life in God, to be forgiving to those around us, and to earnestly and honestly pray that the same God of forgiveness who has forgiven us is the same God of forgiveness who can forgive our enemies and can give eternal life to our friends, to our family, and to those who hate us. So let us come to the Lord today in prayer. Father in heaven, we come before you to say that you indeed are our Father. You have rescued each and every single one of us from death, and you have prepared a room for us in your house. And so we thank you, Lord, for the gift of eternal life. But more than that, Lord, we actually thank you that you have stirred within our hearts the desire to preach your message to those around us. And we thank you, God, that you have given us a generous heart, not to keep this good news for ourselves, but to let all people know that life can be found in death and joy in the midst of grief. But we also acknowledge before you, Lord, that not all of our friends, family, or obviously enemies want to hear this. And so, Lord, we pray. Pray, Lord, that you'll first give us wisdom. Show us the right time and place to be bold for you. Let us arm ourselves not with weapons that destroy and divide, not with words that, that split people apart, but rather with words of salvation, with words of love and forgiveness. Let us overcome evil with good and let us consider it an honor that we can suffer and die for you. 
And so we ask you, Lord, to open up the heavens today so that we can see you standing at the right hand of God. Vindicate us, Lord, as we go forth to preach your word to all nations. In your precious Son's name we pray. Amen.